Well, welcome to the Someone to Tell a Two podcast today. What a what a guest we have in store for you, Dr. Rob Newson, who has led a very storied and interesting career throughout the United States Navy. He's worked in the White House in Washington, D.C. He's worked for some professional sports teams and has done so many different and various things. He's a person who's a, who's a fantastic leader and one who really prioritize, prioritizes the human element, element of leading and how important it is. And we hope you like this, this conversation today because he had a lot of great things to say. So we'd love to just tell you a little bit about Dr. Newson, and he's a catalyst for swarm cancer in the military. He's also a leadership consultant and advisor focused on teams, leadership, and culture. He recently completed three seasons as the vice president of strategy and vision at the Philadelphia 76ers, supporting culture, innovation, leadership, and decision-making. Prior to that, he served as the deputy director of the White House military office responsible for all military support to the President of the United States, including Air Force One, Marine One, Camp David, the White House, Presidential Food Service, White House Communications Service, and the White House Medical Office. Rob served nearly 30 years in the United States Navy. He served 14 years as a strategist working with small multidisciplinary work groups teaming across organizations and government agencies, analyzing and framing complex challenges, combining alternative solutions in creative ways, and writing about critical issues. He has led diverse teams and task forces, coalitions of the willing where he honed an ability to encourage and inspire cooperation, collaboration, and action. Well, Rob, we want to welcome you to the Someone to Tell a Two podcast today. We'd like to start where with you, where we st- like to start with everyone. We just simply want to ask you, just tell us and our audience whatever you'd like about yourself. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate being here. What, what a great opportunity just to talk about some things that are, are near and dear to my heart. So I'm, I'm a flatlander. I grew up in Kansas. My dad was in in the Navy and he retired in 1975. We moved back to Kansas, which was his his and my mother's home state. I went to the University of Kansas on our ROTC scholarship, and that was my route into the Navy. I, I walked on and, and played football at the University of Kansas, a, a great education in in suffering and, and beatdowns, which was helpful when I went into the SEAL t- went into the Navy. I I went through SEAL training, which is also an education in, in beatdowns and suffering. So really, really great preparation. I did 30 years as a Navy SEAL and retired as an 06. Lots of amazing experiences. What a what a great group of people and teammates and service to the nation. I retired in 2018, did some time at the White House. Really great experience working with the White House military office. I did another kind of far afield job as a, as the vice president of strategy and vision for the Philadelphia 76ers. Basically, I became the chief of staff-like element for Elton Brand, the general manager of the 76ers. So 
I guess I'd summarize my experience as, as being very varied, but focused on strategy and vision, teams, leadership, and culture. I was married at University of Kansas in between my, my senior and my fifth year. I, I did four and a half years so I could redshirt and play another season of football. But I got married. We had our first child. We, we started our military career. After two, two and a half deployments at SEAL Team 5, I found myself divorced and, and a single parent raising, raising three kids. So quite an introduction to single parenthood, but eventually met and fell in love with the, the love of my life. And I've been pursuing her ever since, a great partner, ER doc. We have three kids that are in their 30s now. So I think that's, that's a fairly good snapshot summary of me. Yeah, as we were spending time just immersed in some of your uh, previous episodes and and interviews with other guests and and programs, we we did notice that you mentioned a couple times about being a, a single dad of three three children, and we'd love for you just to talk a little bit about what that was like and how that shaped you, and and your career and who you are uh, personally. Yeah, so I was I was deployed overseas and. Um, really had had a conversation with my wife that that uh, she was no longer interested in being married so i came back from that deployment and we separated and a few months later um i took custody of the kids and so the kids were um five three and two they're get, just getting ready to turn into their next ages of six four and and three and I kind of expected, I, I I couldn't see a path forward in the Navy as a single parent, especially a Navy SEAL and three kids. So I, I drafted up my letter of resignation and, and I was talking to my parents and they said, wait, wait a minute, let's, let's not be hasty. We're here to help. And so I just held on to the letter and, and tried to see how this was going to work. My parents were absolutely phenomenal, and I had a wonderful sister-in-law. They would come out and stay with the kids during during deployments, and so they spent time in Coronado. I spent time overseas in various places, Kenya, Bosnia, Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, and so I couldn't have done it without the extended family, but what what a blessing and tremendous opportunities. I was, I was always a family man and very focused on, you know, my priority and, and joy was being home. So I was thrilled to be a single parent. And, and I realized years later, and I told the kids that they saved me from being a self-centered, self-focused person. You can't, you can't be a single parent and, and race three young charges. And, and be all about yourself. It's just impossible. And, and so, you know, I think as a young man, especially a young SEAL, there's there's a great opportunity to be self-focused. And so they saved me from that and gave me a broader purpose and, and focus. And the other big lesson that I, I learned, you know, I think people recoil with, with the term um, male privilege or, or whatever, but as a single father, a single parent male, I could, I would be hanging out with single parents and all of all the rest of them were mothers and someone would walk by and, and just 
fawn over me for the things I was doing as a single parent. And I really felt bad because these ladies right next to me were doing the very same thing and sometimes much better and much more. And yet I was getting credit just for being a man. So that that kind of was my first introduction to to privilege and, and identity and and you know having a sense of of women women's struggle and and so that stuck with me and we can talk later about our efforts in the SEAL teams to to look at women in service and and create women specific teams that would that would provide great value on the battlefield. But those were some early introductions that that really helped me both on a on a personal side and a professional side from being a single parent. When I, as you tell that story, it reminded me that when I was a, a first a father, my first son was born when I was in graduate school and I was going to school full time. And my wife went back to work full time after a period, a period of time. And I, I took my son to class with me. I, I, you know, did everything I could do to, I cared for him during the day while my wife was at work. And, and at times I would take him around, walk him in a stroller, you know, around, and we were on in a college campus and I would get stopped constantly by usually women uh, who would get same thing, just sort of pay attention. It wasn't because of me. It was because of my, my son and I thought he was cute and wanted to talk and people, but people would be very helpful to me, offer to, you know, just do all kinds of things to you know, make it easier for me as if I didn't know what I was doing, but, but which maybe, maybe that was why, but I would tell my wife about it, you know, oh, today we, we walked and, and this person stopped and did this or said that, or helped me with this or whatever. And, and she, and I understood it, had a little bit of resentment for, for that because no one ever did that for her, that there was just an assumption that as a mother, they knew what to do. They had it all together and they could just do anything, but we, we, we males, you know, it was a big deal if, if we were taking over that role. Yeah. So anyway, I learned from that. I, I started not telling her anymore, you know, what, what people did because <laughs> I didn't want to upset her even more about that. But you, you mentioned uh, all those places where you were deployed various countries and, and as well as the white house where you did, where you, where you did work. Were there any, can you just share an experience or two from any of those places that helped to shape you into what you're doing today that, that were inspiration or motivation for the work that you do now? Well, I think there's, there's several aspects to, to all of those. And, and one is, is service and, you know, being, being part of something larger than yourself and feeling like you matter and you're contributing to the team. And so I made, I made two deployments with the national mission force, the, the joint special operations command. I was an individual augmentee. So I was brought from outside of their command as, as extra manpower, if you will. And both times I was, I was leading a very small element interagency so all of government efforts and it was it it really taught me how how to lead without power right when you're leading an interagency whole of government effort you don't have command and control you don't tell 
other parts of the government what to do. And so leading with in partnership rather than in command is a different is a different game and it requires a much different and broader perspective of other people's objectives their their outside triangles as as arbinger institute would say i'm a big fan of of the arbinger institute and their outward mindset work but so working with the national mission force and and leading some of their their task forces that were interagency really taught me both to get outside of myself and appreciate the contribution that that others make that you're often not aware of, right? So in Afghanistan, I read I led the the Joint Special Operations Joint Interagency Task Force for Counterterrorism, and our our remit was to get after terrorist organizations everywhere that we weren't at war. So minus Iraq and Afghanistan, the rest of the world was kind of our responsibility to identify and disrupt terrorist networks. And obviously you're not gonna do direct action missions. You're not gonna send a, a SEAL platoon or a Ranger element to Brussels to do an attack. So it's, it's all about how the Department of State, the Department of Commerce, the, the CIA can, can help in a combined way to get after the problem set. So I really, that's part of my thinking now is well, how, how do we help other people do their jobs while we're getting our job done? How do we all pull together, even though we're not, we're from different places and, and have different objectives, but, but we can have a unified purpose too. And, and so those are some of my lessons. And the, the experience at the White House was was absolutely amazing in that you're inside the 18 acres. And, and I remember this a story that uh, is told about Admiral McRaven when he was a captain. He was on the National Security Council and and he and, and a, a junior aide were walking along the colonnade towards the Oval Office. And the guy, his assistant was on his BlackBerry our phone, checking emails, doing something. And McRaven grabbed him and said, hey, look up. Not many people are allowed to be where we are. And so be present and enjoy the experience, even though we're super busy, we're on time deadlines, there's a lot going on that's very important. Be present in the moment and enjoy your experience. I really took that away with me from from the White House as I, I'd work late and, and wander wander the halls of the executive office building or, or the lower White House and just just take in the history and the gravitas of of the place. And certainly I took that with me when I was at at the 76ers. Not too many people get to be behind the curtain of a professional sports team. And I worked with the 76ers, the New Jersey Devils, and and just knowing that time at, at these places is short enjoy it take it all in and 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 be present or, or a couple of lessons i took away from some of that well since i'm from pennsylvania and tom is from new jersey the fact that you worked for two teams that or the two you mentioned two teams that are from the states that we're from we appreciate that uh, very yeah. much you probably had a lot of moments where you had to pinch yourself <laughs> Well, I, I did, you know, at, at the White House, I was, I, I was, I'm a big, 
I'm interested in history and there's so much of that there with, with the 76ers and, and the devils. I, I wasn't, and I'm not a big professional sports fan. I don't follow a lot. So I didn't approach it from, from a diehard fans perspective of, Oh, wow. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm inside the bubble, but it was, it was a fascinating insight into an alternate life an alternate career path of, of these people who spent their lives inside professional sports and what matters to them and what they focus on and how they lead was absolutely fascinating. And, and it was, it was a thrill to be at games and, and to be in the locker room and just, just see what was going on behind the scenes. As we have heard a bit of your story in some of your other interviews, you've you've talked extensively about your your cancer journey, and and we'd love for you just to talk a little bit about that today, and and then obviously how that is affecting who you are today and what you're involved in. Yeah, thank you for that. It's 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 incredibly important to me and our our community. So in in late 2016, I was I was diagnosed with a very aggressive prostate cancer in early 2017. I had surgery followed by radiation, followed by chemotherapy, and then two years of, of hormone therapy. And my better half, who's an ER doc, you know, get, gave me fair warning and said, cancer is going to take you, cancer and the treatment is going to take you to your knees. It's going to make you question who you are. So she told me, don't, don't lose sight of, of who I am, hold on to it because it's going to be a battle. And, you know, going through those treatments, I had the aches and pains of a 90 year old person. It was, it was incredibly painful just to get up and move throughout the day and, and incredible support from, from my boss, Admiral Kurt Tidd and, and ability to, to, you know, call in, call in week one day and, a week or, or multiple days a week when, when the chemotherapy was crushing me. But one of the things that I, I went through is I didn't, I didn't tell anybody, but my direct boss and, and maybe one or two other people besides my family. And it was about not wanting people to look at me differently, not wanting cancer to be the only thing in my life. And, and I think once you tell your friends and coworkers and teammates, that you have cancer, obviously they care about you. They want to support you, but it can turn into nothing, but how are you doing today? What's going on with your cancer? And, and there's no escape from it. So I didn't, I didn't tell anybody. And, you know, years later, I look back at that and regretted that I didn't, I didn't approach it a different way in that I I completely still would want that that focus to be on the whole Rob Newson and not just Rob Newson, the, the the cancer fighter. But I, I wish I would have engaged other people so that we had the opportunity to deepen relationships so that uh I could I could focus on on building education and awareness around, around the counter. And I wasn't ready at that moment, but I, I wish I were, I wish I would engage differently to tell people, look, I'm going through this. 
I know you want to support. This is positive support and, and this is negative support. And I'd rather not have the negative support, but that takes some, some work and some forethought and, and some, some hindsight, but that's the way I would have approached it then. As I, as I went through my cancer treatment, I say it's like when you buy the red car and then you see red cars everywhere. Once you have cancer, you you notice other people has cancer. Once once people know that you have cancer, you're hearing about other people with cancer. And the number of SEAL teammates who were were fighting cancer at that time, the number that are fighting cancer now is absolutely disturbing and shocking on several levels. One is that these are incredibly fit people. There's there's minimal comorbidity related to these cancers. They're they're fit, they're young, they're active, and yet they have very aggressive, very advanced cancers, and and they're often not discovered until stage four, and it's a terminal diagnosis. Instead of trying to figure out how we're going to fight this, we're figuring out how we make end of life decisions because it's it's found so late and so i've i've kind of rallied with other teammates across the special operations community to do more about this to educate and advance treatment and and diagnose diagnosis options so you know the first thing i looked like looked at was what do we need to do and i thought the last thing we need is another nonprofit that's focused on special operations or cancers. There's so many great organizations and, and we just need to, to get everyone focused in, in the same site picture and ha have them do their part. And so I, I've partnered with, with the Hunter seven foundation, who's doing absolutely amazing work, both in cancer research and, and stepped up efforts to do the gallery blood test, it tests for 50 different types of cancers, and and really get this out to the special operations and the military community. Hunter 7 is focused on all of the military, both active duty and veterans. They do tremendous work. I partnered with the Soteria Precision Medicine Foundation, another nonprofit that does amazing work around DNA testing of both the tumor and, and the individual, and then hooks people up with precision medicine therapies that are cutting edge, individualized treatment. And the other amazing thing they do is, is individualized, personalized nurse navigation. So one of the big struggles when you have cancer is first you're faced with, with your own mortality and, and potential death. You're thrown in into the deep end of a, a clinical world with, words and processes that are very difficult to understand. And so you may go to a doctor's appointment and you're just overwhelmed by everything. What Soteria does is prepare their 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 folks, the, the cancer fighter, before every clinical meeting. So you can go into that meeting knowing generally what they're going to talk about, have your questions ready. And so you don't leave a meeting and think two days later, oh, I wish I would have asked about that. So really great process to support. And our goal is, the broader goal is to educate military members in the special operations community that they're higher risk for cancer, that they should be screened and, and not blow off. 
what may seem like minor ailments because it could be an indication of a larger problem to get screened and then for those who do have cancer to get them into cutting edge precision medicine care and, and treatment. You answered so many questions that that arose in my mind as as you were talking about, you know, why do you think this prevalence is is a higher risk? You've answered, you know, you've answered that and what some of the causes are, very, very important. So we want we want to thank you for the work that you're doing there and for the support that you're giving to people who are living with cancer, particularly veterans and those who have been exposed to all the things that you're you're talking about. I appreciate that very much. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's a double tragedy when, when you have, when you know people who, you know, survived years of combat and, and high risk training and they've retired into what they think is, is a safer life. And then, you know, the residue of that service comes back with, with cancer. It, it can just be devastating and, and shocking that, you know, now this, but great men and women who are fighting this and tremendous nonprofit organizations that are, that are making a difference. So I'm, I'm thrilled and honored to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. A big part of our message is to encourage people to come out of their hiding, to cop to their pain. And so we just wanted to ask, um, you know, as you reflect back on some of the things that you were probably carrying that you didn't share so much, uh, what might ha uh, what might you have to say about this, particularly in the military, where talking about what's going on is inside isn't always discussed as frequently? Yeah, it's both from my, my cancer experience where, you know, I, I, I didn't feel like I was wanting for support. My, my, certainly my family rallied around me and, but there's, there's a difference between support that you need and community that, that uplifts you. Right. I mean, so from, 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 I guess, from my perspective, from a SEAL's perspective, I, I was doing okay. I wasn't struggling, but there's a difference between not struggling and thriving. And, and that to me, the, the being able to, to share and communicate and have vulnerability is about relationships and community that turn into thriving. We had, when I was in my 05 kind of battalion level command, I had an amazing junior officer that was just absolutely phenomenal prior enlisted guy who was a great junior officer. And he went on in his career and, and just a little while ago, he 
took over command of a SEAL team. And he reached out to me and asked me to be at his change of command and asked me to be at his house for the family celebration, which I was I was thrilled to do. What a great man, a family man, a, a husband, a a father, a man of faith who, you know, had it all going on. And a few months after he took command, he succumbed to suicide. And and I don't think anyone had any idea what he was struggling with and and the demons he was he was facing. And it just it it brought me to my knees to think about this this great man who who suffered so much that that it ended that way. And he's not a one off. Right. This happens so much in in the military. And then you add traumatic brain injury and and PTSD and and our service members are often worried that if if they identify the problem and seek help then they're going to be sidetracked from their career and I think the military is doing a better job of that and certainly none of us want to look like we're weak or we are less than and so we hide it and we stuff it down and it gets back to to surviving or thriving and vulnerability and and just sharing finding someone to share that with is so is so important and and devastating when it when it doesn't happen so whether it's whether it's cancer or other illness or or some emotional or psychological issue you know talking about it is is the first step to to healing it i think you mentioned the word thriving a couple of times in in that response. How are you thriving today based on your experience? What what did you learn that that enables you to find places where you can thrive? There's a couple of things. One, you know, the story of of how I got to the White House and now how I make decisions. I was getting ready to retire from the Navy. I'd sent out retirement invitations to friends and family. And the director of the White House military office called me up. He said, Rob, what are you doing when you retire? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm going to go home. I've been a geographical bachelor for four or five years now. And and I, I want to get back to my family. <laughs> and he, he said, don't do that. What I'd like you to do is retire a little bit early and come be the deputy director of the White House military office. And I had no idea what, what WAMO was about, but it, it runs all DOD services to the president. So that's Camp David, Air Force One, Marine One, the White House Medical Office and the Presidential Food Service, the Communications Agency, the Transportation Agency. I had no idea this stuff existed. And, you know, it's always a great honor to be invited to to into the White House for for a position, another position to serve the nation. And I was weighing this and my better half came out to Miami where I was stationed and I picked her up at the airport. We were driving home and my future boss and his wife called and said, hey, what do you think? And my better half could tell that I was getting ready to say no. And she said, Keith, we're going to call you back. And so we hung up the phone and she she simply asked, three questions. She said, 
is this job important? Does it matter in a larger scheme? And I, and I said, yeah, I, now that I know about it, I think it's incredibly important. And she said, will you make a difference, right? Will my contribution actually make a difference? And I said, yeah, I, I think it will. That's why Keith is reaching out to me. And, and the final question, she said, would you be happy doing it? And I said, yeah, I think I would. And she said, well, there's our answer. You're going to have to go to the White House. And that those three questions really struck with me. And I, I took the 76er job because it was it was different and it was interesting and it was fascinating. But for me, it really didn't answer those three questions. And I told them when they hired me, look, this isn't a full time thing, a long term deal with me. You know, I'm used to military rotations. Let's plan on on uh, three years and we'll see how it goes. And so when when my time was up, I was ready to move on. But I've spent about eight months working on the cancer issue and slowly searching for for my next great adventure. And those three questions really drove what I'm doing next. You know, does it matter? Will I make a difference and will I enjoy it? Will I be happy doing it? So that lead, led me into, you know, the the venture capital firm Bravo Victor that that we're starting now and and really focusing on a schoolhouse for founders that will make a difference in our national security. So those three questions. And then the other thing is there's there's a, a great researcher and, and lecturer that I follow. And I was talking to him and listening to one of his lectures recently. And he was talking about resilience. And he said, you have to have a third thing. And you know, work is one thing, family and home life is another. And to really thrive, you need a third thing. And it, just find something that recharges your batteries, that fills you with wonder, find something that matters to you that isn't work and isn't home. And so I was lucky enough to, to find a, a great nonprofit called Stand Up Paddleboard Veterans, SUPVETS, who taught me to, to paddleboard surf and another great nonprofit called One More Wave that, that sponsors monthly surfing events and provides veterans, disabled veterans with, with aquatic therapy tools. And so they, they got me a, a stand-up paddleboard and, and all, the, all the supplies necessary. And so that's my third thing is when, when I'm feeling a little boxed in, when I, I need a recharge, I'll just get out on the water and and be be one with with nature for a little bit. So those those two aspects really have have helped me insist on thriving instead of surviving and and you know waiting waiting for that next job and and being strategically patient was was not easy when you want to get after it when you want to contribute when you when you want to start making a you know your second income living again it was it was hard but holding on to those three questions and having having a third thing really really helped me to find what i think is is an important contribution point that i'm excited to start now yeah on that that last point there what, what would you want to say to those of us who i think all have this potential trap of 
fully identifying ourselves with what we do. Yeah, I, I was very fortunate when I was working with Elton Brand. We were we were thinking about player player development from a very broad perspective, and I was doing research, and I I ran into a guy named Jim Grossman, and and Jim has been thinking about professional athlete transition for about twenty years, and we were talking about military transition and and professional athlete or even Olympic athlete transition. And, and you've got these areas and, and these aren't the only areas and, and it can happen to everyone and anyone and in any area of profession. But these areas are, are you are somewhat unique in that they are defi- identity definitive, right? I am a Navy SEAL. That's who I am. And, and what you do becomes who you are. And the same with a professional athlete. We, I, I was thinking and Jim was working with us on thinking about pro athletes. And so you've got somebody who looks like they have amazing potential when they're 12, 13, 14 years old, and their entire world begins to revolve around becoming a professional athlete. And their family is dedicated to that. Their family makes sacrifices. These players often go to private boarding schools. They're about creating a professional basketball player. They do their one season at, at, a, at a college basketball team, and then they're in the NBA. And their entire life has been about becoming this thing. And this thing is who they are. If you were so unitary that the thing that you do is who you are, when that sucks, you suck. When when things go wrong in your professional life and that's all you are, then everything is wrong. And so Jim Grossman coined this phrase of identity paradox, where the very thing that gives you joy and passion and and purpose can become the prison that makes you only that and traps you in in a smaller vision of your identity. So the keys, and and I've been working with with, uh, a great special operations transition organization called the Honor Foundation that that helps special operators, Green Berets, Marine Raiders, Navy SEALs, Rangers, Air Force Aviation soft guys to transition. And, And part of that is understanding that that who you were is not who you're going to become, that you need to be broader. And, and this gets into that third thing a little bit of it, it has to be more than than just work and just going home to get ready to go back to work. And so to, to counteract the identity paradox is, is to create the whole individual, to have outside interest in, and create create a whole person. When when I got to the 76ers, they pointed to our our newest rookie, Matisse Thibel, and they said, don't expect every NBA player to be like Matisse. And this kid was so well-rounded. He he was a, a phenomenal photographer. He was a reader. He his first season when they were in the bubble, he did a, a really funny and interesting video blog and so he he is an example 
of a person who can still dedicate his life to a profession and be more than just what he was on on the court and and so i think that's that's a great example of of thriving and so what the honor foundation tries to do with special operators what other organizations are doing with professional athletes and olympic athletes along with military folks is is trying to give them a broader perspective of who they are and who they can be you've indicated that the tone or of a of an organization and and a culture of an organization is really dependent upon its leader. We'd love for you to expound upon that about what a leader can be and do and present to to an organization, especially in terms of you know vulnerability and openness, uh, relationships, listening. Tell us what you think the attributes are that will help to create a, a good leader, a good leader who who nurtures a great organization. Yeah. I, I, I thought leadership was so important. I went to the university of San Diego and, and got my PhD in, in leadership studies. And I, I'm very hesitant to, to talk in, in some ways I'm hesitant to talk about leadership because it's, it's, it's an art, right? It's not a science. There's no checklist. It's, it's about, living it in in the moment not not reading about it in a book but i'm there's no doubt that leadership sets the ceiling in an organization for everything from performance to culture to commitment and vulnerability it the organization will will reach no higher than the limits of of the leader and so and I've had phenomenal opportunities to be, to watch really what I think are some of the greatest leaders ever in function in their organizations, you know, with the National Mission Force, watching General Stanley McChrystal or Admiral Bill McRaven, Kurt Tidd is another phenomenal admiral. And, and so watching these leaders lead with, with vulnerability with transparency one of the values that that are so important to me in in leadership is is leaders who think out loud who are leading through intent and not solely direction right so leading by direction is uh, is saying i want you to do x leading with intent is i think we should do x and this is why and this is the background and this is what we're trying to achieve because you want people to be able to to adjust off of intent right that the the world changes context changes and and people are going to have to make decisions in the moment and not go back to leadership to ask well now this is different what should i do it's very difficult to do that when you're leading by direction it's it's enabled when you're leading by intent this is what we're trying to achieve and so this transparency and, and visibility of of the leader's thinking, I think, is is so important. And then the vulnerability to say, I don't know, or I screwed up, really changes an organization, right? I some some people are on this mantra to never 
never apologize, never say you screwed up. You know, it's always on someone else. Never show weakness. I, I think that's the exact opposite of what great leadership is. And, and people can relate. And, and it's no secret when, when a leader screws up, right? You're not, if, when I've screwed up in an organization, everyone knows it, right? The people who work with me have seen it. And I'm the only one that's not admitting it. So when I admit it and everybody can be on the same page of, oh, glad, I'm, I'm glad he saw that because we all saw it. it. It really changes the dynamics of the organization. And it creates a culture where it's, it's the right, the right thing to do is, is to expose where we've, where we've misstepped and make improvements not to cover it up and and hope that no one notices and and certainly that was been, has been big in in my youth and the seal teams is we're all about after action and getting better and and it can be a, a brutal discussion but it's not personal it's professional and so just just leading with your vulnerability and your ability to accept your own shortcomings and and seek team solutions is is a big part of that well dr newson we just absolutely think you're just a dynamic leader and we have so much to continue to learn from you and we're so grateful for this conversation today one of the things that we'd love to do with a lot of our guests is just to ask a simple question kind of where are you finding a sense of hope in the world right now <laughs> Man, that can be tough, especially especially when you're when you're doom scrolling through through the news. I I find a lot of hope in in the younger generations of of you know it's it's easy I think in the military to have have hope when you have continuously a new group of a new generation of of people who care and are committed and engaged. And certainly that's just not in, in the military, but as, as I get into the venture capital firm and, and we look at, at startup founders who are trying to contribute to national security, there's, there's so much hope in the dynamic push to improve, to get better. And, and I, I struggle. I really struggle today with 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 the extremes of of our our political system, with the extremes of of commentary and news. But I I do see hope in in the middle ground and 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 efforts to bring us together instead of divide us. So uh, you know, there's there's silver linings in in all of the dark clouds that we're seeing out there. But, but I look, I look to younger people. I, I look to, to founders and innovators and, and I look to people who are trying to pull us together. Well, Dr. Newsom, thank you for joining with us today. Thank you for your inspiration, for the work that you've done, the service that you've provided and for the things you continue to do to make this world a much better place and a place where there will be less need for doom scrolling and, and for more hope along the way. So thank you. It was my pleasure. I appreciate being with you guys. 
Well, thanks for joining us today in this conversation with Dr. Newsom. It's not every day that we get to talk with somebody who has been in the White House and worked under a presidential administration. And so that was really humbling today. He just had so many incredible things to say about leadership and culture. And he, as I said at the very end to him, he's somebody that we would absolutely want to follow. He's served our country extremely well. So we're fortunate to have this dialogue today. As I mentioned earlier, when we began this podcast, is that he he also is very concerned about the the, the human ele- element of leadership, and it it's not about somebody necessarily giving orders from the top down, but it's someone who is collaborative, someone who is willing to willing to admit mistakes, to be to be open and vulnerable, trans and transparent, and to be seen as a human being himself. And I think, and I really appreciate that, that kind of leader and, and someone who would make, would make it easier to follow and to understand, and to know that maybe we're understood more and appreciate that so very much. So as always, just thank you for following someone to tell to his work. If you'd like to learn more, um, certainly about our training materials, our six module training program, you can go to our website, someone to tell it to.org. And as always, um, we just encourage you to think of five people that you could share this episode with as it helps to grow our, our audience so that we can get these programs into more ears and more hearts. So thanks again for joining us until we listen again.